Welcome back to Brojo Online. Today I'm going to share a random list, an incomplete list, of some of the biggest realizations and insights I've ever had in my life. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity. recognize some of these as coming from uh, philosophers and influences and figures that you've heard of and some of them might be more of a synergy of my own creation of other people's work I mean all of this has got to come from somewhere else because these are insights they're realizations something provoked me from the outside world to change my view on things and I honestly I just wrote this list up in like 10 minutes just bang 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 after listening to way too much tool uh, so these things get a little psychedelic. But hopefully there's some in here that you haven't heard of that might help you. Some of these things are cold hard facts. Others are opinion or philosophical perspective. They're all truth in their own way. And some of them are painful. I think this is one I really have to give you a heads up warning. There are some of these that hurt my mind when they first occurred to me, there are some that took me actually months, perhaps even years to recover from fully. The recovery was always, you know, good. It was, it was worth it to go through that pain. But some of these absolutely devastated me um, because they were true and made me aware of the lie I'd been living and the lie that I still wanted to cling to, the, the thing I still wanted to believe. So... Be prepared. If you haven't heard these before, or if you're open to having your world rocked a little bit by something that sounds utterly implausible but is undeniable, then be prepared, you know. This might hurt. So I've just made a list of these like bullet points, and I'm just going to rant on each one for a little bit and move on, and we'll see what happens. Okay. Number one, let's start with one that kind of defines all the rest of them. And this one came from watching a TED talk by a neuroscientist. And I believe the title of that talk is, Is Reality a Hallucination? If you Google search that plus TED talk, you're bound to find what I'm talking about. I can't remember the exact dude. But essentially, the premise is this. Your brain, if it is indeed a brain, interprets ele electrical signals, Right? So all the senses, you know, the five senses that you're taught about in school and then all the other ones, you know, the sense of where your limbs are, all these things that we aren't taught about. But there's there's all these senses and they're all, you know, they're all scientifically measurable senses in a sense. And they send electrical signals through your central nervous system back to your brain. Kind of like some sort of very advanced, complicated Morse code that is then interpreted. So sound waves hit your eardrums, the little, um, what are they called, philia or something? Those little hairs shudder at the sound. They're very sensitive little hairs that are blown by sound waves. That creates an electrical signal, goes to your brain, and your brain turns that into Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. And it does that with every human that hears it, as far as we know. Now, does everyone hear the same Bohemian Rhapsody? We'll never know. Is everybody's color purple the same purple? We'll never know. That's unverifiable. Because we'll always point to go, yeah, that's purple. 
and we won't know if we're seeing the same thing. But anyway, that's how the brain works. Electrical signals are interpreted, and then we witness this. We observe it in consciousness. This undefinable space that is everywhere and nowhere. Where, say if we are watching Queen play live, we see them, we hear them, we feel the heat of the crowd. Everything, all at once, as this kind of 3D movie inside our minds. And here's the thing. The only thing we know for sure is that that is not what's happening. Something is triggering us to have an experience in our mind, but the fact that it is interpreted, that the raw data is turned into this mind movie, means that we're not seeing the raw data. We know, if nothing else, that there is interpretation. Okay. When you receive a written message that somebody has decoded from Morse code, you know that that isn't what was sent. It was do 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 but that's not what's written down. What's written down is, come save me, I'm stuck in the bunker, right? So come save me, I'm stuck at the bunker, isn't what was sent. That isn't the message. That's the interpretation. You seeing everything, everything that's ever happened to you in your entire life has been an interpretation. We are living inside a room we're trapped inside a room that we call our mind. It seems to have no walls because it goes as far as our perception goes. It goes all the way to the horizon. If we want to see further, we can. It seems to have no limit, but it is in fact entirely limited. We have no fucking idea if there even is an objective reality. All we know is if objective reality exists, we cannot experience it we do not see it as it is perhaps it's just binary code like a computer zeros and ones perhaps it's heat and light i don't know we'll never know as the guy in the uh ted talk puts it you know a snake it's almost certainly an objective reality something dangerous it's almost certainly something harmful but it's definitely not a snake a snake is how we manifest it in our mind to make sense of the data you know, interpretation, the snake, the shared interpretation that we have of that data gives us a working kind of uh, platform. It's like, well, I'm not going to go poke that fucking scary looking thing with fangs because my mind goes, don't poke scary things with fangs, right? I'm not going to jump off that cliff because it looks really high. Now, there's no cliff, but there's certainly something there that will harm you if you were to somehow engage with it in that way. At least we can assume so. It's kind of like the Matrix. That's what I think that movie is trying to represent. When the person's getting the shit kicked out of them inside the Matrix, their real body's just sitting in a chair, like fucking shaking and bleeding, right? They're not actually being harmed. The mind's just making that happen. So when you realize, it's, it's an incredibly lonely realization, at least it was for me, that it's just you in there. Everything in there, all the people in there are just manifestations perceptions you don't even know if any of it exists you could be a brain in a vat that's a thought experiment you can look up on wikipedia you know you're hooked up to a computer that makes you think you're alive 
but you could just be a brain in a vat being studied by scientists, having this entire life experience, and not knowing that you don't really exist in such a way. And in fact, the most bizarre you know, element of this, the most, one of the most bizarre practices in human world is neuroscience, where the brain studies itself, measures itself, and gives feedback on itself. Pretty biased, don't you think? Don't you think a human brain should be studied by something other than a human brain to get an objective perspective of what's happening? We know the human brain's capable of dishonesty. Why would it tell us the truth about itself? How do we know that it is? Just because every human brain can come to an agreement on something, which actually very rarely happens. We almost always disagree on various things. Who's to say that the brains aren't somehow in collusion tricking us all? Who knows? We'll never know. But that's one of the biggest things that ever rocked my world is the wake-up call that, like, the idea that there's a wall there and a computer here and that I'm sitting in a chair, that's all bullshit. None of that is happening in, in an objective way. It's how my mind makes sense of data. That's all. And I have no idea what that data is, but I know it's not a chair. It's not a computer. It's not a wall. It's not hot temperature. Those are just sensations. They're just interpretations of data. It's me making sense of something that is real, probably. But I have no idea what it is. That's realization number one. And if that doesn't keep you up at night, I don't know what's wrong with you. Number two. I'm going to stop numbering them because I haven't numbered them on my list and I'll lose track. But the next one. Everyone's doing it wrong. When we look back at the past, especially when you go more than a few decades back, you go into hundreds of years, we can clearly see that everybody was doing it wrong, right? We look at things like slavery, like, I can't believe you guys had slaves. You know, we look at things like, you know, wars and all the stuff that people used to do. We look at uh, stupid medical practices before science. We look at the way organized, you know, people organized societies before democracy or whatever. And we think, look how stupid those people are. Look how poorly that system works. Look how, you know, low their life expectancy, low their life quality. I mean, the poorest people alive today live better than the Egyptian pharaohs lived, right? So the, the emperors and, and rulers thousands of years ago had worse quality of life than our poorest people today, right? So we can look back in the past and go, man, they were really doing it wrong. And that should click onto something like, where the future's past, right? Should humans somehow survive for a few hundred more years, they're going to be laughing at us. They're going to be rolling their eyes at the way we do things. All of the ways that everyone does everything. Now, there are exceptions, aren't they? You know, aren't there? We, we look back, we see Marcus Aurelius or, or some great philosophical figure from back in the day, and we go, man, those dudes were onto it. Well, there actually wasn't all that many of them, was there? The majority of people weren't like that around the world from what we can see from documented history. Most people were doing it wrong. Nearly everyone. There was just a few bright sparks amongst them going, nah, there's a better way than this. And those were often the pioneers who came up with things. You know, there's some stuff that was figured out years, many decades or hundreds of years before it was proven, you know, in science and astronomy and stuff like that. You got guys who figured out, oh, you know, maybe the Earth actually goes around the sun and you know, they get locked up and burned as a witch, but then hundreds of years later, it's like, nah, that dude was onto it, actually. So, no doubt there are bright minds alive today that even hundreds of thousands of years later will still be respected. 
but they are very few. The majority, the vast, vast majority, they're doing everything wrong. The way they maintain their relationships and their social life, wrong. The way their work and vocation, you know, the way they bring in an income, provide for themselves and keep themselves busy, wrong. The way they take care of their health, wrong. There's, there's a lot they're doing wrong. And yet we feel compelled to go with the crowd. And I got this particular insight from Eben Pagan, the marketer, ex-pickup artist dude. And it was a very simple lesson. He said, like, when everybody's... It was a business training course I was doing of his. He says, when everybody's going one way, go the other way. And business is counterintuitive that... The way that works is the way that very few people are doing. And the way that doesn't work is the way that everyone's doing. So if you see something everyone's doing, like, I don't know, Google Ads or something like that, that's almost certainly not the best way. Okay. It'll be the way that gets laughed at in years to come. It'll be laughed at now by the people who are doing it right. You can see this with uh, the uber wealthy. The way they manage their money is significantly different to the way that everybody else manages money and even views money right um you can see this with people who are super healthy the way they eat and look after their bodies is super significantly different to the average person who's of mediocre health at best right so one of the things is you got to understand if you are going with a vast majority if you're doing things the way most people are doing them the only thing you can really be sure of is you're doing it wrong right and i got to call out some hard facts here Doing a nine-to-five job just for the money. That's what everybody does, right? Um, settling down, getting married and having kids just because it's expected of you. That's what everyone does. Uh, staying in the same country that you were born in. That's what everybody does. I could go on and on, you know. Watching lots of Netflix. Smoking, drinking, drinking alcohol, right? Everybody drinks, right? Well, so... If you're completely lost as to how you're supposed to live, you can start. You can do a one-year experiment, essentially, of just being counterintuitive. Just don't do what anybody else is doing. I don't mean anybody in the entire world. It's not actually even possible to think of something that's completely unique, probably, but certainly not what the crowd's doing. Look for the outliers. Look for the weirdos who seem to be really enjoying their life doing something really different. They probably are getting mocked, or they're you know they're envied, and you know they get a lot of hate. But if you look closely and you put away the envy and the jealousy, and you go fuck, they're crushing it. Go well, what do they do differently to everybody else? How do they live differently? What rules do they break in their minds? That's a very true one, I've got to say from experience. Everyone who's living the right way that everybody else lives, doing it wrong. Next one, you are capable of so much more than you could possibly comprehend. This is perhaps a cliche, you know, that people don't live up to their potential. There's an old myth about people only using 10% of their brain or something. It's bullshit. You use your whole brain. Don't worry about that. But people will look at someone, say, like Elon Musk, this hyperachiever, and think of him as some sort of freak. Or they look at someone who's, you know, done something incredible, like an astronaut who's gone to the moon, or 
uh, CEO of a major company or somebody who wins gold at the Olympics. And you just see them as this like separate category of people. You're looking at it wrong. It's just another human like you. But they've done something that you haven't. And that's they've unleashed their potential. They've gone all in at what they are built to do. Now, they've had a lot of good luck in that they've figured out what they're built to do. We're all kind of built to do something incredibly well. If we can find out what that thing is, we're on the home stretch. But not only have they figured it out, they've gone all in on it. They've What would look like to another person is they've done a lot of risk-taking. But when you go all in on what you're great at, it's not actually risk-taking. It's risk-taking not to do that, in a sense. It's very risky to live a mediocre life when you could have a great one, right? So you have a thing, a thing that you are incredible at, a thing that would, you know, how it would look is, for example, I can churn through books, right? I read book after book after book. I just sort of scan down the page and all the words go into my mind. I like hallucinate while I look at a page and I just play a movie in my head. I'm not even really reading the words exactly. I'm just kind of scanning and a movie plays in my head. Um, and to me, that's normal. I've been doing that since as long as I can remember. Reading's always been a huge part of my life. I, just, I used to read three or four books a week as a kid. You know, I just pumped through them. And I used to have a friend who was dyslexic. And it blew his mind that I could read like that. This guy would struggle to get through a magazine article in a single day. Uh, and... To him, it was just incredible that I could just absorb information by looking at words. Because he's dyslexic. To him, the words are like this struggle, this chore to work through. And you have to do them one by one and then try and figure out what the whole thing means. On the other hand, he was a mechanic. He just drives a car, he hears a noise and goes, oh, that's the blah, blah, blah. I could be a mechanic for 20 years and I wouldn't be able to do that. I don't have that part of the brain. Like, the handyman side of me is very much like... I can do it, but I have to get the YouTube out. I have to fuck it up three times and before I get it right the fourth time. And that's like that every time. And I really easily forget, even though I just did it recently, I forget how to do it again. And it's like that part of the brain just doesn't exist. It wasn't trained. It's not my thing. But when I tapped into my thing, which apparently is coaching, or should I say it's talking honestly in a way that helps people practically. That's my thing. I'm not bragging, it's just my thing. Everyone's got a thing. It's not a brag to say you've got one. But I was somehow unleashed, you know, through various supports and efforts on my own part. I managed to find my thing and go all in on it. It was very hard because, like everybody else, I was raised in the system that discouraged that. You know, if you're raised in the classic schooling system, you've been discouraged away from your thing. Um, especially if it's creative, artistic type thing, or if it's... Uh, Anything that wasn't taught in high school is one of the compulsory subjects. Basically, if you don't want to be a university professor, you're probably discouraged away from your thing in some way or shape or form. But when you look at someone who's hyper-successful, whatever that word means for you, you know, if, if you've got social struggles, then it's the person who has a huge social network and everybody thinks they're amazing and they've got great deep connections and they find it really easy to click with people or whatever. You know, if it's money, you know, it's the obvious one if it's physical health you know you can see how it is you look at them as superhuman they're not they just found their thing and they went all in on it and i fucking guarantee you you could do it too 
It just requires an incredible amount of insight and courage. You have to explore yourself, be honest with yourself about what your thing is. It's probably something unacceptable and socially, or at least in your social circle, something you're ashamed of. Um, and quite often you'll think it's a weakness, right? So this is why I think most people overlook it is because their strength is being framed as a weakness. You know, uh, I see this a lot of, I've got a lot of clients who are on the autistic spectrum in some way, shape or form, not the dysfunctional end of the spectrum, the functional end, but, um, they see it as a weakness. They're always trying to hide it, fake it, learn how to be more normal and so on. I'm like, dude, why the fuck would you not use it? Right? Like, it's this brilliant thing. Like, my book editor, uh, my book editor is on the spectrum, and her editing skills are phenomenal because of those traits. Right? She she has this ability to pick holes in an argument, to make sure everything makes sense and goes in an order that, you know, uh, really sells a point without getting off track and so on and so forth, that a normie can't do and can't see. It's like a superpower she has, right? She's figured out how to use it. Next one. Pain is physical, but suffering is nothing more than perception. So pain is electrical signals going from your body to your brain when there has been some sort of disruption. You know, blunt force trauma, cutting, uh, injuries, sickness, so on. There is physical pain. Now, not only is physical pain actually relatively rare, especially for people living in first world countries, uh, it doesn't actually guarantee suffering. Anybody who's done a really satisfying workout knows what I'm talking about. You know, the lactic acid builds up in your muscles. It's a horrible feeling if you weren't at the gym wanting that feeling, right? I often talk about it with people like, if you had the feeling of that 20th push-up, but it happened to you randomly while you're walking down the street, you'd think you were dying. You'd be really scared and really concerned and suffer a lot with that burning feeling in your chest. But when you're at the gym having that feeling, you're like, fuck you, I'm crushing it, right? It's totally about perception. Physical pain, like I've had plenty of tattoos, and you can either enjoy them or wish that they were ending, but the pain's the same. It just depends on the story you attach to it. Do you want this pain or not? But suffering, suffering's the word I give to the emotional and mental pain that you cause yourself by perceiving something a certain way. If we take, say, a really extreme case, you've got these uh, Shaolin monk type people who are trained and disciplined their whole life to the point where you can boot them as hard as you want in the testicles and they don't suffer. Right? They've disciplined their mind in such a way that you cannot upset them in any way right these people exist there's documented uh, there's documentation of these people you can go look it up yourself so we know that the human being is capable of that and we also know that these shaolin monks you know anybody can train to be one you know the earlier you start the better it's not like some ethnicity or race thing this is anybody can be like this if they dedicated their life to it so we know a human can be completely a human being can completely detach suffering from pain. What we also know is that there are people out there in great misery with no scars to show for it. No wounding, no bleeding. Take them to a doctor, the scans come up with zero. 
They have no physical pain whatsoever. And yet they're suffering immensely. So we know without a doubt that you can have suffering without pain. And you can have pain without suffering. But what we often tell ourselves is a story that they're connected. So you get the obvious one where somebody gets some sort of physical pain. You get punched in the face. You get a little bit sick or injured. So on and so forth. And then you suffer immensely because the story about the pain in your head is very unpleasant. I sh he shouldn't have punched me. Life is unfair. You know, I can't get sick now. I'm going to be late on my assignment. That's where suffering comes from. The story you attach to pain. But I think it's even, even more incredible. Because, like I said, physical pain is actually a relatively rare occurrence for most people. Except for those with chronic illnesses and injuries. But even then it becomes a baseline that you find normal. The people who suffer without any pain whatsoever. The people who suffer just by perceiving something in such a way that they find it unpleasant. You think of something neutral, sitting in traffic. That's actually a neutral event. I mean, if you were sitting on a couch watching TV, it would feel exactly the same physically as sitting in traffic. But does it feel the same emotionally? No. And each time in traffic is a different experience. Now, if this is the same old traffic that you have to go to every day for work and you've been doing it for three years, eh, it's just neutral. Sitting there bopping along to your songs. But if you're in a hurry and it's an unexpected accident, now you suffer. right? You're still just sitting in a chair. A relatively ergonomic chair, probably. But, oh, the heat, the frustration, the agitation in the body... The raging that, that can lead to a headache, even. You can actually create physical pain from suffering. But if you understand that at any point of your suffering, you made it happen, you created the suffering with a story about what's happening, then you understand that ultimately, at some level, you're in control of this. You are completely the god of this universe. And so it's up to you whether or not it happens. Next point, this one's a real mindfuck one. You have never had a relationship with an actual other person in your entire life. And I'm not just making fun of like chronically single people here. What I mean is, going back to the first point about reality being a hallucination, well here's a kicker. Everybody you've ever known is just a profile inside your mind. You create a person inside your mind in response to whatever the real person actually is assuming there even is a real person i saw a this was a wake up i got from byron katie this is the kind of thing that she does a lot she was talking she was in front of a room i think there was like a thousand people there i'm making that up it doesn't matter and she said you know you think there's one byron katie sitting here but there's actually a thousand because each one of you views me differently so there's a different Byron Katie in each one of your minds. And get this, it's actually a thousand and one, because I've got my own version. And here's the kicker. All of them are correct, and none of them are correct. There is no Byron Katie. There are just manifestation, copy after copy after copy. All of it slightly skewed, slightly different. Never the original product. There's only just copies of copies. So even your image of yourself is something you made up inside your mind and is unlikely to be fully accurate you ever notice somebody points something out that you do and you didn't realize you do it you know a pattern you have perhaps or a, a physical habit that you have or you know something you know you repeat yourself and you didn't remember 
telling the story the first time, they know something about you that you don't. How much of that information exists? How much do you not know about what you don't know about yourself, let alone other people? If you can barely know who you are, imagine how little you actually know about someone else, even your partner of 40 years. If they can surprise you even a little bit, it shows you don't really know them. You just know the image you've created. You think about somebody disappointing you. How is that possible? If you actually know them truthfully. The only way someone can disappoint you is when their real person doesn't match the person in your head. The person in your head is idealized in some way. They're better than the real person. That's the only way you can be disappointed in someone. Is when you don't know them well. Right? We blame other people for disappointing us. I can't believe he's late. Well, you should because he's late. Right? You thinking he's the kind of guy who's on time, that's your problem, not his. You're wrong about him. Oh, but he's always been on time before. Yeah, but he's not this time. So it turns out he can be late occasionally. You didn't have that on your profile, or otherwise you'd be like, oh, he's late. Yeah, it's expected. If anybody ever does something unexpected and disappointing to you, you're wrong about them. In fact, that applies to everything in the whole world. If anything happens that disappoints you, it's because your expectations were wrong. Reality's never wrong, right? You know, if a person comes up and punches me in the face, it's not like, hey, that shouldn't have happened. Right? No, they were destined to punch you in the face. They're built for it. The fact that you didn't see it coming means that you didn't know them well enough. You can see it in the opposite when you accurately predict someone down to the penny, right? And you're like, this is exactly what he's going to say. If you do that, I've known him my whole life, and if you do that, he's going to say this. They go, blah, blah, and he says it, and you're like, I fucking told you, right? That's when you've actually, your profile matches the person. Now, you're still going to be wrong about a lot about that person. You have no idea what they're thinking 99.9999% of the time. Like, think about how many thoughts you have and how many of those you actually share with people. Like an iceberg, right? A vast majority of what you experience remains under the surface. And then there's still the stuff you don't know about yourself. So... One of the upsides to this is grief. We, we grieve for somebody's physical body dissolving, coming to an end. Uh, entropy. We call that a death. But if they still exist inside your mind, then your relationship's ongoing. That was the only relationship you actually ever had with them. Uh, Byron Katie pointed this out to me as well. You know, if... Uh, What's the difference between your child dying and your child being in another room in the house and you can't see or hear them? Right, They exist the same in your mind in that moment. Like right now, it's just me in this room. I have no idea if anybody I love is still alive. right? And yet I'm still in a relationship with all of them right here. I'm still in a relationship with my grandfather, both my grandfathers, both of whom have died. It didn't end with their body. Sure, new experiences won't be created with them. But you've got a lifetime already, you know, you've already got so many experiences, you can relive them over and over, and actually every time you relive them, it kind of updates and changes it a bit, so it's just you and the profiles in your head. You only ever have a relationship with profiles. The good news is those profiles never have to go away. The bad news is, you're still going out with all your exes. Keeping on the mindfuck um, train... Your particles replace every seven years. 
Now this is an oversimplification, but generally speaking, all the molecules in your body, all the cells in your body, you know, they have a life cycle of their own, and it doesn't last your entire life. And at the longest, it lasts about seven years, from what I understand. So I think it's in the liver or something, there's some cells that last quite a long time, but even they eventually die and they are replaced. I mean, how do you think a person grows from a baby to an adult? Something's got to move, right? Something's got to add and something's got to subtract to make that happen. You know, it's the simplest thing of baby teeth falling out or hair falling out or skin flaking off. You're like, you think that's the extent of it? Now the whole body, everything, including the brain. And what this means is, if you go back, say, eight years ago, that person, down to the molecular level, cell by cell, atom by atom, is 100% different to you. It's a completely different person, as different as you, I, I am to you. Right? In fact, I might even have a couple of the atoms of the original you, so I might, be more, I might have more in common with you physically than your own past self. For all I fucking know, I don't know where those atoms go. They don't go that far, do they? They must bounce to the next whatever the fuck. <laughs> Especially if you're a cannibal. Anyway. So we got this idea that I am me. This constant. Ever since I was born. Rather than saying the truth is, the only reason I believe that is because there's a kind of supply chain of memory recall. My memories are handed from past self to present self, over and over again. Every time I recall something, I'm actually making a new memory right here and now. I'm not actually looking at an old fact, like it's like some movie that I pull out of the cupboard, chuck it in the VCR, watch it, and put it back on the shelf. No, no, I actually look at that movie and then make a new one and replace the old one. All your memories currently, right now, if you've ever recalled them more than once, you've actually replaced them and updated them. You'll know this because you get details wrong sometimes. Have you seen that? Sometimes you remember something and you realize it was a dream and it didn't actually happen in real life. Or you remember a person from childhood and then when you see them, you're like, oh, they got red hair? I thought they had brown hair. You don't realize that you updated the memory shortly after the event actually occurred and you kept updating it until one day, you know, it's like that thing, Chinese whispers. Every time it was updated, a little bit got changed, a little bit got lost. There was some, you know, amalgamation of facts. There was some sort of, uh, synergy where it was mixed with other memories and simplified or exaggerated or whatever and by the time you know 10 years later you're looking at the same memory it might as well be a completely different event you're so far off i mean we can see this in the science the evidence of eyewitness testimony you know people can't even get skin color right when they're under duress so the idea that you are able to recall things with some sort of crystal accuracy is so incorrect there's like three people in the world who can actually do that, and they've made documentaries about them. And even they still only get the gist, you know, it rained and it was a Tuesday. They can't do much better than that. The point of this is, you are not you. You're not the static thing. You know, you're not obliged or loyal to any past self. That was a different guy. You don't have to fulfill the contracts that he signed, and that can be a literal interpretation. Let's say you're 10 years into a job that you don't like. Yeah, he might have liked it, that you, 10 years ago, but you're not him now. You're not the one who signed the contract. You're not the one who made obligations and dug in and settled into this job. He did. Now, you've got to ask yourself, do I still want this? One of the most empowering things you can do is just to imagine that 
today is the first day of your life. You just got dropped into this life. But rather than being born as a baby, you just dropped into an actual life that's already like up and running. It's like buying a house or taking over a work project. It's like it's already had heaps of shit done to it. You're not beginning something. You're getting, essentially, for a lot of you, it'll be like this fucking hospital pass. You're like, hey, here's a mediocre life. Good fucking luck. By the way, you're in heaps of trouble, but you'll figure it out. Sometimes I felt like that when I look back, you know, especially when I started to try and be more honest at the lie world that I had created. When I say I, that my past selves had created. I was like, oh, thanks very much. There's like a thousand lies I have to go and fucking disclose and... There's all this bullshit I have to unravel. Jesus Christ, most of my friendships are horseshit. I don't even like my job. I probably shouldn't be living in this city. Like, what a mess you've left me with. But that was the right way to look of it. My past self, it it landed me in this mess. But he's a different guy. You know, I actually don't have a lot in common with him anymore. If I look at the teenage version of myself, I'm like, yeah, put me back in high school. I'm not going to behave like that. Jesus Christ, I wouldn't even be close, right? It's barely me, so it's not really me. It's just a guy I used to be, whose memories have been handed on to me, right? It's like some sort of body swap thing. Do with that what you will, but that won't get me up at night. Next one, you never experience the same thing twice. The brain likes to oversimplify, likes to make you think that you are repeating experiences, but you never have even once. Because there's a very simple argument to dismiss any claims that you've ever repeated an experience. No matter how scientific the standards of the experiment were, no matter how perfectly you replicated the variables, there's one thing you couldn't control. The second time you did it, you were older. Time. Unchangeable. No matter how many times you think you've done something, you know, carrying on from the last little factoid, you've always been a different person doing it. So you've never done anything twice. I'm not sure what the implications for that will be for you. But have you noticed how many times you might say something like, I've tried that before and it didn't work? So no, you didn't try that before. A different guy did, and it wasn't even it. You tried something that looks similar before, but everything's changed since then. Because very rarely do all the variables get controlled. You might say, you know, I tried to do this course three years ago. Well, actually, the course is different. You're different. The situation you're in is different. The world is different. This isn't even close to a repeat. Do the course again. Because you're not actually doing it again. You're doing a brand new course as a brand new person in a brand new time. You know, the amount of times that people will put themselves off from trying something because they say that they've tried it before and it didn't work. No, you haven't actually tried this before. This is new. It's always new. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't similarities and that we can't learn from patterns. But patterns and similarities are not exact repeats. And it's a very important distinction. Especially when... You got a sense that it might have been the right thing for you, but maybe you just tried it at the wrong time. Or maybe you did it under the wrong motivation. Or maybe you just weren't ready yet. Or whatever. This time could be different. It's not a repeat. You're trying something new. And that's how it must be assessed. Okay, this new thing that I'm trying, is it right for me? 
not have I done this before and how did that go? All right. That was a big one for me because it's taken me like back to things that I've failed at in the past and it's helped me persevere with difficult things because I've realized persevering doesn't mean repeating the same thing over and over. It means you keep trying to achieve a goal waiting for the circumstances to change in your favor. That's what persistence really is. That's what perseverance really is. Let's say uh, I'll take some sort of really simple analogy like you want to jump over a certain height. Every time you do it, it just you're fucking miles off. You're like a foot shorter. and No matter how much you try, you just can't quite get off the ground high enough. You think, well, why would I keep doing it? Because, you know, the last 20 times I've jumped the exact same height and so on and so forth. What you don't realize is it might take 250 goes, right? And each time you're actually making a millimeter of progress, too small for you to measure, or you're building up a certain muscle set, or you need to wait until your body matures in such a way, or your mind unlimits itself in such a way, but due to some other experiences outside of this activity, you know, it's like um, I used to get really stuck on certain dance moves. And then I'd go away and I'd come back to them like three months later and be better at them and could do them flawlessly. And yet I haven't even been training them or practicing them at all. And there's a common myth like, you know, practice means repeating something. But actually it doesn't. Not necessarily. I mean, there's an element to that. But quite often going away from something that you've been banging your head against the wall, you know, for a while... And then coming back later, having had other experiences in life, suddenly you crack the code because something in those other experiences changed you in such a way that makes this now available. Now you can do it. And many musicians I've spoken to, myself included, they'll find that if they take a break from their instrument and come back, they play better than they've ever played before. It makes no sense because in that gap you've had no practice. But something's happening in that gap. Some sort of development is taking place without you even touching a guitar, you know? So if you realize that nothing's ever repeated, you realize you're always starting new, you've always got a new shot, fresh slate. It doesn't have to be like it was last time. And certainly if you really want to do better this time, then you must really accentuate being different in some way. Don't try the same thing, being the same person. If it's not working, go change something about yourself and then try it again. Or change something about the situation and then try it again. Or change something about the activity and then try it again. And realize you're never really trying it again. You're just constantly trying something new until you find something that works. Oh, I've got a, quite a big list. I'll actually go a bit faster on the rest of these. Next one. There is no finish line. People get stuck on a finish line. Happy ending. Fucking Disney ruined us all. This idea that you go through the trials and tribulations and you achieve the big goal and then nothing basically, happily ever after. They never show it on the Disney movies, do they? What happens after Aladdin and whatever his missus name? I, I think I knew it. Jasmine. <laughs> I didn't know that. I've got a kid who's got an Aladdin book, so there you go. So Aladdin and Jasmine, after all the bullshit and the flying carpets and the genie and everybody getting in, up in their shit, they finally get together and they have that romantic kiss and they float away on the carpet into the sunset or however the fuck that movie ends. And then the credits roll. But then what happens to Aladdin and Jasmine? Anybody who's gotten married knows that after the wedding day, more stuff keeps happening. Yeah. 
after the happily ever after, then you go back to other problems. Now you've got mortgage problems. Now you've got kid problems. Now the marriage isn't quite working out like it was supposed to. And Oh, what the fuck? Your ex is texting her again. Oh, now they've got problems again. You know, uh, one of my coaches, I was talking to him about money at uh, some stage, you know, the beliefs around money. And he was basically someone who's like, he's basically doing one zero better than me. You know, so whatever I'm making, add another zero to it. If I'm making 10 grand, he's making 100 grand, you know, and so on. Um, and I was just sort of like, well, what's it like up there, you know, up in the clouds of money? And he just said it like that. He's like, same problems, more zeros. I was like, oh, really? Like, it doesn't feel bad. He's like, I'm as stressed about money as I was one zero ago. And two zeros ago. And I was just like, oh, shit. The problems don't stop. I have a client. He's one of those, uh, or ex-client, sorry, a crypto trader type guy. He once had a dream making a hundred grand a year just trading crypto. When I finished, wrapped up coaching with him, he was making a hundred grand a month. And he still wasn't satisfied. hundred grand a month. When his dream was to make a hundred a year. He's doing twelve times better than he ever dreamed. Still not satisfied. There is no finish line. The next set of problems are waiting for you. Now, there can be better problems to have than the ones you're having. You know, in a very superficial way, the problems you have when you're rich are better than the problems you have when you're poor, financially speaking, strictly financially. There are a lot of rich, miserable guys. I promise you that. I've met many of them. You know, you might think, oh, once I get really healthy and fit, then my health problem's over. Actually, maintaining health's a bitch. Like, getting abs is hard. Keeping abs is probably even harder. You know, same with relationships. You know, I have a lot of my clients in particular struggle to create romantic relationships and they yearn for it. I'm like, you yearn a little less, brother, because once you get there, it's not like some party, right? Once you're, you're living with a girl long-term committed, like that's its own set of shit that single people don't have to deal with. Now, it might be worth it. It might be problems you're willing to have because the overall lifestyle is better than the one that you've got. But don't think that there's a finish line you cross and the problems go away and the pain goes away and you've solved everything. That does not exist for anyone, anywhere, and it never has. And it's actually the realization of that that is the finish line. And you go like, oh, it's always going to be hard. Okay, well, I guess I'll just deal with that then. The yearning goes away. The ambition to constantly want more and never be happy with where you are, that diminishes. You know, yeah, I'll just deal with what I got. Fuck it, because I mean, it would be nice if it gets better, but if it gets better, it's still going to have shit to deal with. So i got a question whether I really want it to get better. My most recent coach, I was talking to him about uh, scaling up my business. He's like, you sure you actually want to? I was like, that's a good question. I just thought you're supposed to. Like, you always go up, right? And he, he talked to me about the concept of managing other coaches rather than coaching myself and so on and becoming this really admin heavy job he's like is that worth the extra money i'm like oh no that's horrible i made that mistake in my last uh, work when i was working in department of corrections i got too many promotions essentially i ended up going away from the work that i loved i was like oh this stuff sucks just sitting in a chair like me answering emails like fuck I, like i jumped ahead too far or something so be careful before you upgrade because just because it's more doesn't mean it's better and you're not going to arrive somewhere and be done. 
If you're dissatisfied now, you're going to be dissatisfied later. You need to figure out why you can't be satisfied with life. That's your real problem. No, no extra results are going to solve that for you. Next one. Motivation's negative, not positive. People think they're motivated by inspiration or uh, admiration, looking up to people. They're motivated by wanting more pleasure and wanting a better life. If that works, then all those quotes and shit you see on Facebook all day would actually do something to people. They don't, though, do they? No. Goals and dreams and all that stuff sounds really good. But you know what motivates people? Negativity. Guilt. Frustration. Especially frustration. Hate. These are the things that you need to tap into. Anger. If you really want to motivate yourself, you need to get yourself worked up about something. Right? Because motivation is essentially what exists when you're not afraid. Okay? You'll notice that something you're not afraid of is you're always motivated to do. Like maybe it's to have a shower in the morning. You have no fear about having a shower in the morning and so it always gets done. You notice that? Um, hanging out with your family, perhaps, and that's not going to apply to all of you, but for the, those of you who have a good relationship, you're like, well, oh, I'm nervous about going to mum. You, you don't feel that, so you just go, yeah, I'll go see mum. No problems, right? As soon as fear comes up, motivation becomes a problem. Well, there's a counter to fear. There's a few counters, but the main one's anger. One of the most motivational states to be in is when you go, all right, fuck this shit. I'm sick of it. That is one of the most motivational states you could ever hope to be in. And you don't get there by trying to be all positive and happy. You get there by having a good, hard, honest look at what you do not like about yourself and what you do not like about your life. With real David Goggins type shit here. Okay, and this isn't the poor me have a look at your life. Oh, I'm so fat. I'm such a loser. This isn't that. It's like I'm sick of being fat. Enough. Right. It's a different approach. It's an aggressive, assertive approach. It's an approach where it's like I'm not playing the victim. This is on on me. It's by me. It's for me. I'm getting it done. It's a responsible mindset, not a victim one. It's not about blaming yourself for things going wrong. It's about going look. I've been dropped into this life. I don't like this part of it. I've had enough of it. It's changing. Right? And believe it or not, hating yourself can be a great motivator if you apply it right. And I don't mean that uh, hating yourself is a good state to be in. And I don't mean that you necessarily hate yourself for the right reasons. Maybe you've been conditioned to hate yourself from shame and you're actually just fine the way you are. But most of the time... The reason you can't accept the way you are is because it's unacceptable. I don't believe that whole bullshit, oh, just look in the mirror and just go, I'm okay with things the way they are. No, I don't I don't fucking agree with that at all. If you're a fucking mediocre loser, no, I don't agree with that. I don't think you're acceptable. I'm not by my standards, but by your own. Fact is, you will not be frustrated with yourself. You will not be mad at yourself. You'll not be disappointed and feel like you're missing out if you live in a way that you accept, right? If you don't accept yourself, that's it's motivation there. If you look in the mirror, you don't like what you see. If you look at your social life, you don't like that experience. If you look at your job, it disappoints you. Good. Fucking do something with that. Get mad. Get courageous. Get ready to roll the dice. Had a great session with a client just last week. Um, 
where he he wasn't really motivated to become a great person. He, it just it was too vague to him. He couldn't see it coming true. He wasn't sure that he would actually enjoy it. He didn't trust himself to make it happen. And a lot of people have this problem in self-development is, you know, you set these great goals and dreams about what you want to be, but you just don't trust yourself to make it happen. You're not sure it's going to deliver. Well, you don't need to do that. You can just be anything other than what you are, right? And I had a wake-up call in that session for myself, an insight that I'd kind of forgotten about. When I first started working on my nice guy syndrome, the goal was simple. Just don't be a nice guy. That was it. That was the criteria. You can do anything. And I actually did some pretty shady stuff. But the point was just break the patterns. Be anything other than this thing that you hate being. That you're sick of being. That you're disappointed in yourself for being. Do anything else. Be honest. Be rude. Move. Travel. Dance. Anything that isn't what you'd normally do to please people. And that's exactly what I did for, for a couple of years. Essentially, that's all I thought of is just different i did the yes man thing you know after reading the book and watching the movie yes man uh, i just said yes to everything for a year because that's something i wouldn't usually do um and you know i had confrontations i did the whole pickup artist thing even though i didn't really like manipulating people i'm like at least i'm trying something and it's not what i usually do and i was just motivated by a single force like fuck being a nice guy i'm sick of it that was my motivation, and I've never been more motivated in my life. I did some incredibly courageous stuff during that time in my life. Uh, I don't know if I could ever reach that high again. Like, I was brave. I was, like, heart beating in my throat, almost throwing up when I was doing some of the stuff that I did. But it was worth doing because it was like, either this or keep being a nice guy. Go, oh, fuck that, I'll do this instead. Who gives a shit? I'll throw up on everybody if I have to. I just don't want to be that guy anymore. Next big insight. I think you're born with core values. This is an opinion more than a fact, but there is some science behind it. If you want to know what that science is, go read The Philosophical Baby by Alison Gopnik, Dr. Gopnik. Um, and I've seen this in my own daughter. I've seen it in a lot of kids that you know around me growing up at the moment. Without any training, prompting, force, children will do things of their own accord, and there are patterns. And I really do believe I see general and and universal core values coming through. Curiosity, for example. Persistence. Those are a couple that you see in babies really a lot. They will keep trying something until they figure it out. Like, I've got my daughter this little uh, sort of fake little kitchen thing for kids, you know. And there's a nice dispenser. Well, it's little white blocks of wood come out. She must have cracked that thing fucking 200 times before she got it to work, before she got the ice to actually drop down. No frustration, really. No giving up. I mean, she'd walk away and have a break, do something else, then go back to it. It was many days of attempts, but she just kept coming back to it. And she, some, at some point, she actually got worse. You know, she started doing it in this way. I'm like, that's never going to work. You were closer before. She's just calmly trying to make this fucking thing work. She knows it works. She's seen me do it. I thought, you know what, I, I won't teach her unless she asks. Like, I'm just going to see. Does she give up or what? But I've seen her, you know, it's one of the things that makes me love her the most, really. She's so persistent. She will keep trying to climb up on the couch until she gets up there. No matter how many times she falls and bonks her head on the floor or whatever, you know. She just non-stop and very curious. Also very honest. You know, she points, she looks, she talks about what she's thinking and interested in. You have no doubt what she's feeling. She's very playful. She likes to have fun. She has a little, a very, you know, 
basic and pure sense of humour that I think is brilliant, makes me laugh all the time. I haven't taught her any of that, neither has my wife, right? We might have modelled some stuff, I'm sure, sure she's... But there's stuff she does, like, that's just her. Like, it's not even either of us, it's just her own thing. So she just made it up. So I've got this theory, and I've had this theory for a long time. We're actually born with core values, and then we get conditioned and programmed away from them. We get taught rules instead. We get taught how we're supposed to be by other people's standards to make them feel better, to be more convenient to them, to your parents, to your teachers, to society, to the cops, to your peer circle. We just constantly get barraged with advice and punishments and conditioning to fit in, to be something that other people prefer. Fuck that. You gotta understand, like, you you know, deep down you know what's right and wrong by your own standard. Nobody else's. Not even the law. Right? You didn't choose the laws. I actually condone people breaking the law if they come to that conclusion by their own core values. You know, classic one, uh, somebody say using somewhat devious tax uh somewhat devious tactics to avoid paying as much tax as they are expected to pay in certain situations i'm cool with that because like for example i'm in the category of the worst i'm small business owners get the worst tax out of everybody the poor and the rich don't get taxed it's small business owners that really get taxed and it's so fucking unfair in terms of like everybody contributing it's so overburdened on small business owners. They contribute way more than anybody else does percentage-wise. So if a small business owner finds a way to scam his way out of some taxes, legally or illegally, I'm just like, just don't get caught, brother. Do your thing, right? And people who want to smoke weed and it's illegal, fuck, smoke it. Why, why is cigarettes and alcohol way more harmful? Why are they legal? It doesn't make sense values-wise. It doesn't make sense in terms of any kind of ethics or principles or morals. It only makes sense politically. Nobody can tell you what's right and wrong for you. But you can tell you. You actually do know. For some of that information might be very vague and murky and you'll feel like, nah, that can't be it. Because you've had so much conditioning and programming, you've got so much shame, so much wrongness attached to your authenticity that you just shy away from it you've never practiced it you've never given it a crack but like the the six that we use for brojo and they're my own personal ones i really do think they're universal and they're at least a good starting point that you can play with them and then adjust it responsibility curiosity courage honesty acceptance and respect i really think that these are universal principles that everybody can benefit from living by now it doesn't mean that they're right for you. But if you're not sure what yours are, try some of those. Try being more honest. Try being braver. right? Try learning a bit more. Whatever. Next one. You've never been rejected by another person. Ever. In your entire life. There's a combination of two things. One is, a rejection isn't somebody saying no to you. That is just somebody express, expressing their preferences. Okay, that's somebody denying your request, perhaps. Uh, but what they're basically saying is, no, I'd prefer something else. The idea that you've been rejected is ridiculous. If I found $10 on the ground and came up to you and said, do you want this $10? And you said, no, you keep it. Would I feel rejected? 
course not, right? But how is that different to saying, would you like to go on a date? And they say no. Or can I have that promotion? And they say no. Or, you know, can I get a discount on this coffee? And they say no. What's the difference? There is none. They're just saying they prefer a different thing to what you're suggesting. That's it. The other thing is the sense of rejection, the sense that you've been turned down, that you've been negatively judged in some way, lost something. It's all perception. And most importantly, it's your perception. I want you to notice that there's something that happens, which is, let's say I find someone attractive, but I tell myself, no, nah, you know, they wouldn't like me because I'm too short. I just got rejected, but they weren't involved. What just happened there? Well, I rejected myself. You know, let's say your thing is you think you're too short. How many people have actually said to you that you're too short? Right? And even if they have, how do you know that's the real reason? And it's not just some reason that popped into their mind and their real reason is something else that they're even not even consciously aware of. How do you know what they really wanted and what they really wanted to say in that moment? You don't. So you can dismiss anything that anybody else has ever said to you as being accurate because you don't know if it was or not. Somebody might have said it because they want to hurt your feelings. Somebody might have said it because it popped in their head and later on they regret saying it because they didn't mean it. You don't know. Right? Very few people say what they actually mean. People don't even know what they actually mean most of the time. Very few people are self-aware. But you'll notice what happens most of the time is somebody else says, my preference is no. And you say, it's because I am this and that and the other. And that's where the rejection takes place. Your explanation for their preferences. Let's say the classic idea of a rejection. I go up and ask someone out and they say no. And I walk away and this list plays in my head of all the reasons why that probably happened. Now, they haven't said any reason. They said, no, no, I'm good, whatever, right? And they go, oh, it's probably because I was too needy and probably because I'm not handsome enough and blah, blah, blah. And I go through this list and I'm just sitting there just rejecting myself over and over again. What if she's a lesbian and she just didn't tell me? What does that say about the list I just went through in my head? It's irrelevant, isn't it? She'll say no to any guy. So what's this list got to do with anything? You know, I went for the promotion, but they said, no, it must be because I'm too stupid, or they said I wasn't experienced enough. Maybe you remind them of their ex, and they didn't even think of that. And you had no chance, because you've got like a traumatic face for them. It's got nothing to do with your workability whatsoever. Maybe you're in a company that wants you out. You're in a bad company. And actually, them saying no is the best thing that could possibly happen to you because you'll finally leave and go find something else. How could you call that a rejection? No, the rejection takes place in here when you say something bad about yourself. Next one. There's no such thing as doing something by accident. There are no mistakes. There are hidden goals. What I've come to realize is that if you really want to know what someone believes and what they really want, there's only one source of evidence, their behavior, right? You must completely ignore what people say they want and watch what they do, and that will tell you what they really want. For example, somebody says, you know, I want to be in a deep committed relationship with you, and they cheat on you. What they're saying is, no, I don't want to be in a deep committed, certainly not a committed relationship, right? If they wanted that, there would be no cheating. There'd be no betrayal. 
there'd be no superficiality. What somebody says is, is irrelevant because they might even believe what they're saying, and quite often they will. And you'll believe what you say when you say, I want this and I want that. But what does your behavior say? What does their behavior say? Someone says, you know, I want to be rich, and they blow all their money on crap. No, you want to be poor. Definitely. You're living the dream in terms of being poor. Right? You're doing exactly what you need to do to be poor. So that must be what you want. Somebody says, I want to be healthy, and they smoke cigarettes. No, you want to be unhealthy. Clearly. Somebody who wanted to be healthy wouldn't smoke cigarettes. So I don't care if you think that you want that. You clearly don't want that. Or at least, if nothing else, you don't want it as much as you want the other thing. You might have some yearning towards health, but not as much as you want unhealthy. Not as much as you want the feeling of the cigarette going down your throat. You'd prefer that over healthy. And one of the biggest frustrations people have is they're like, I really want this thing and I'm going hard for it, but it never works out. Well, what if you don't actually really want it and it not working out is your goal being achieved? When you see that for what it is, you'll realize the level of self-sabotage that takes place in your life and the level of deception that takes place from other people. When somebody says, you know, like, oh, you're such a good friend, and then they treat you badly. No, you're not a good friend. You gotta understand that. They don't, they don't have a good friendship with you. They might think that they see you as a good friend, but they wouldn't treat someone like that if they were really saw you as a good friend. So they don't see you as that, right? But more importantly, this is about you. You say, like, you know, I want to start my own business. Well, where's your business then? Until you've got your own business, no, you don't want to start your own business. You want to stay at this job. Once you start to admit to yourself what you really want by looking at your behavior and going, what does my behavior say that I really want? Then you'll start to see your hidden goals, your subconscious motivations. And you get to ask yourself, is that good enough? Am I okay with that? So you never have to ask, like, how do I get what I want? What you really have to ask is, I can already see what I want. Am I cool with it? You know, if you think, God, I really want to be healthy. No, no, no. Drop that. Drop that dream of being healthy. Look at what you eat and how much you exercise. And then ask yourself, how badly do I want to be healthy? And be like, well, I binge on alcohol every weekend. I keep skipping my workout. And I keep eating sugar late into the night. So I must want to be really lethargic and overweight and unfit. I clearly want that. So how do I feel about that? Am I cool with that? I'll know that I want to be healthy when I see myself eating right and exercising and, you know, going to bed at a good time. That's when I'll know that I want to be healthy. But until I see that, I have to say to myself, I want to be unhealthy. Clearly. Because it's only when you face the truth about what you want that you might be able to change it. Until then, you're just fantasizing while you continue shitty behavior. It's like a screensaver to keep your mind occupied while you actually sabotage yourself. I used to do this with women all the time. So I really want a relationship. Really? Look at your behavior. Are you being brave and honest and deeply connected with women? No. Quite the opposite. You're being real needy. You're actually missing opportunities. You get too drunk all the time so you can't act or do anything right. No, you clearly don't want to be with a girl at all. You even got erectile dysfunction. That's how badly you don't want to be with a girl. And I never got to see that until very, you know, way too late in life. I was just like, oh, I'm actually avoiding women. How do I feel about that? 
And that changed my approach a lot. I'm like, oh, I've got to stop avoiding them, right? I'm going to make some fucking calls. I'm going to go talk to some chicks. Like, I need to change my behavior to prove that I really want this thing. Next one. Everybody's crazy. Yeah. That's all. No. You'll notice that you won't get upset with someone's behavior if it's justifiably crazy. In certain situations, this will be different for everybody. Subjective. Um, but a story I often tell is there was a big fallout in my own family. I won't name names, but kind of two sides of, of, of the family, like split in half over these two people who were like bashing heads, right? His father and daughter were having serious conflict for many, many years and people had to take sides and it got really ugly and anybody caught in the middle got hated by everyone and it was very, very stressful and just bizarre as well like oh what's going on why do these two people hate each other how do we fix this and nothing worked and then almost simultaneously both people were diagnosed with long-term uh, dementia and the dementia was the reason for all of their conflict the behavior escalation between the two was coming from both of them essentially losing their minds and when everybody realized that that's what had been happening all along conflict gone family healed i don't know if it was that quick but it was only a few conversations for everybody to go oh my god is this what this we've been fighting about this and they're just sick they're just sick people that's all this isn't personal this isn't real they just it's just two sicknesses bouncing off each other you know and it suddenly all made sense because there was other weird behaviors and so on well you'll notice there's things like that right like maybe you forgive a child because they're immature you know saying something mean or you know, somebody who you think is mentally ill or, or intellectually disabled, you might forgive them certain behaviors that you would be very harsh about with somebody you considered sane or, you know, fully functional or intelligent. And yet, there is no such thing as sane, harmful behavior. Anybody who does anything harmful is coming from an ill or dysfunctional or disordered place. Especially if what they're doing is bad for their own life, in the long run or short term. So whenever somebody does something that's harmful to you, even if it looks like cold, calculated bullying, or it looks like they're, you know, they're having fun at your expense, or it looks like they've gone out of their way to make life hard for you or whatever, the first assumption you've got to make about them is like, man, they got problems. Like nobody who's confident and healthy and functioning well would do something like that. And here's the thing you got to understand. Yeah, you might get hurt feelings if you're overly sensitive to somebody else, like living their life. Like if you're judgmental and, you know, conservatively minded, you might get upset by people just doing what they're doing, living by their values. But a majority of the time, if you feel like someone's hurt you, maybe they have, maybe they've done something objectively harmful towards you, but your suffering comes from thinking that it was somehow sane and intelligent, purposeful rather than seeing it as the knee-jerk reaction of somebody who has at least temporarily lost their mind and might never really had control of it. Like, there are a lot of functioning lunatics in the world. Many, many millions of them. There are people where I'm just like, some, some of them I watch them like, how do you get up and function in this adult world without ending up in jail? But they do. And... They don't know how to connect with people properly. They don't know how to express their needs. You know, maybe they guilt trip all the time 
Uh, they don't know how to accommodate the stresses and struggles of the world, like the person who cuts off everyone in traffic all the time. They just can't like comprehend that they have to share space with the rest of, you know, the particles in the universe and so on. Like those are all forms of insanity. They're detachment from reality. People who do not accept life. They're people who do not take responsibility for themselves. They're people who can't find anything better to do. And here's a key one. Let's say you're getting deep into the comments section on social media and somebody's really giving you shit. You're like, dude, what is this dude's problem? Stop and ask yourself, is this the best he can do with his time? Like, I'm watching someone do the very best they can think of doing with their time right now. What does that tell me about them? And the answer probably is, they're not doing very well. Because there is nobody who's confident and healthy and doing well ranting and raving and online bullying right there's nobody you never have those that combination of confident and online bullying you never have that ever a confident person never does anything at all deliberately harmful or even just inconsiderate to other people really it's very rare that they would and if they would it'd be for the greater good it'd be it'd be you know long-term increased quality of life for everyone involved essentially so next time somebody pisses you off, just remember, they're broken, they're wounded, they're all kinds of fucked up. So why do you take it personally? It's clearly not about you. And why do you get up so upset with them when actually they're suffering more than you are? I'll just do a couple more because I'm losing my voice and my girls will be getting home soon, so I'm going to skip some of the lesser ones. There are no wrong decisions. Decisions are almost arbitrary. It doesn't really matter what you choose. People get so fucking stuck in analysis paralysis, overanalyzing, like, oh, what's the right move before they take any action? They're looking at it wrong. There are no bad decisions. There's just bad reactions to decisions. Let's say you got a decision like, should I live here or move to the other side of the world? It actually doesn't matter which one you choose. What matters is what kind of life you make for yourself wherever you live. So if you make it work, then either of those options are good. And if you can't make it work, then neither of them are good anyway. Right? If you can't figure out how to make the most out of life, then it doesn't matter where you live. Okay? And if you can figure out how to make the most out of your life, then it doesn't matter where you live. Okay? Now sure, some options will give you different opportunities to others, but if you're a person who makes the most of all opportunities, then it doesn't matter which one you choose. You know, should I get married or stay single? Hey, as long as you can enjoy the life, doesn't matter. Try both. Do neither. It doesn't matter. Right? The decision doesn't fucking matter. When you get all hyped up, oh, should I do this or should I do that? Fucking flip a coin. It doesn't matter. What matters is, once the decision is made, you go, right, let's make the fucking most out of this situation. Even when it looks like a mistake, you're like, oh, Jesus, this went way worse than I predicted. Learn from it. Grow from it. Be anti-fragile so that you're glad that something bad happened to you because it made you so much stronger in the long run. You know what I mean? Look around the situation and go, right, what can I salvage here? And at least become someone who's growing their resourcefulness. You know, making mistakes, so to speak, is actually one of the best things that can happen to you if you make the most of making the mistake. You don't get strong from getting things right. You get strong from getting things wrong. So I, I say fucking get impulsive with your decision making, but get much more considerate with post-decision behavior, right? So decision making doesn't matter. Flip a coin, give it five seconds, choose anything. But where you really put in thought and effort is to what you do with the decision after it's made. 
you know, flip a coin. Fuck, I've got to quit my job. Okay, here's my notice. Right, stop and think. What do I really want to do for work? What are my opportunities? Let's not rush this. Let's not panic about money. Let's fucking... I'm, I'm free right now. I could do anything. Let's make the most of it. That is really what good decision making is about. Post-decision behavior. little quick one. Addiction is mostly about accessibility. You know, I used to work with drug addicts a lot, and of course in my work I come across all kinds of addictions. Porn, Netflix, games, uh, sex, there's all kinds of addictions. But one thing i found is the, the most helpful thing to breaking an addiction is cutting off your access to whatever your particular drug is. It's not even really about beliefs and trauma and therapy and group support. It's just about not having it available for enough time that you lose interest in it. Really. Like, you take any dedicated, fully nicotine-hooked smoker and you plop them on an island for a year without cigarettes, they will be cured of their addiction. It's as simple as that, for the most part. Right? Even You notice this with flights. I noticed this with, like, when I started flying to America and stuff and it was about 12 or 13 hours and I was a smoker. I could handle the whole flight without smoking because I couldn't smoke. I mean, as soon as I got to the airport, I'm like, oh, God, I hope they got one of those horrible death rooms that I can smoke in. But the flight, I was actually relatively calm, very unagitated. I could get through the whole night sleeping without waking up, panicking, needing a smoke. So addiction was really just about awareness and availability. It's the same like somebody has a porn addiction. Cut off your internet. Porn addiction gone, really. And then you need... There's a certain amount of time. Some people say 21 days to break a habit. I don't know what the exact figure is. It's as long as it takes for you to go, huh, I'm not really thinking about it anymore. Whenever you get to there, then it worked. I wouldn't say that you should then get accessibility again. You should just make it always unaccessible. You know, you should make it that you can never really access your drug of choice without strenuous effort, without a lot of chance to stop and think along the way, a lot of chance to reconsider, you know. Uh, there's lots of different ways to do it, lots of practical ways to do it, but if you want to quit something, just make it really hard to get your hands on, on that thing. An old classic one that just not enough people seem to have got their heads around. Permanent happiness, such as life satisfaction, happily ever after, is impossible. Impossible. The human brain will not allow it. From the basic premise that you cannot have one single emotion constantly, you cannot feel good all the time, because you will get bored of that feeling, it will become normal to you, and then it doesn't feel good anymore. Plus, even if you could sustain it long enough to get bored from it, you can't actually. The brain doesn't allow it. The brain reacts constantly moving, moods shifting, Physical, physiological, you know, systems moving around, you will always have a range of emotions. The idea that you'll be able to go like, okay, I'm happy now, lock it in, forever. Oh, hopeless. It's not physiologically possible. And even if your definition of happiness is some sort of contentment, satisfaction, some idea like you wake up every morning like, I love my life. Not possible. It's not. It's not possible you're gonna have rough days you're gonna have off days things are gonna go wrong for you i mean you think let's say you cross the finish line you're rich and you got a beautiful wife and you're really you know you look great and everything just rolls out in front of you and you get everything you want and you're doing this really meaningful work and then you get cancer 
You're still going to love it? You're still going to feel good? Well, you're probably going to get cancer in your life if something else doesn't kill you first. Cancer is super common. It's only a matter of time, right? Something's going to happen to you. Somebody you love's going to die. Something's going to get stolen from you. Something's going to fucking crash and burn. Nobody has ongoing sustained success without any dips or fluctuations in the chart forever. That's never fucking happened. And even if it could, the human brain, for survival reasons, evolutionarily speaking, is wired for dissatisfaction. We get an itch and ambition to seek new and better all the time because that's what used to keep us alive. You think back when we were in the middle of the food chain, little hunter-gatherer tribes that were at, as at risk as any other kind of like low-level predator. You think like, you know what, this berry bush, it's all good, let's just stay here forever. It's like, uh, once the tigers find out that that's where you camped, you did. You're going to be like, look, these berries are alright, but I'm pretty sure there's some better berries around there. You know, I'm, I'm getting a bit sick of these. And that was actually to keep us on the move. You ask any fucking, like, combat veteran when it comes to escaping dangerous situations, they always say, don't stay still. Keep moving. Get the fuck out of there. It's a survival strategy. So you are constantly going to end up dissatisfied. You know, I saw an interview with Dan Bilzerian talking about how he always has like Michelin star food cooked for him and now he can't even enjoy normal food. He thinks it all tastes like garbage and he can no longer enjoy his Michelin star food. It's just normal food for him. There'll come a point where no food's good enough for him because he's peaked and his dissatisfaction has not stopped. But integrity, that's a realistic goal or at least a much more rewarding one. You can't be happy all the time, but you've got a better shot at being more real over time. You've got a better shot at impressing yourself with integrity over time. A better shot at discovering and living by your principles ever more consistently over time. And that creates a deep inner reward that can't be called happiness because you're going to have a range of emotions and fluctuating luck throughout this experience. You'll still have highs and lows. You'll still have good days and bad days. But you'll like being the guy who's going through that or girl that's what integrity is is when you go like no matter how shit things are for me i don't want to swap with anyone else because i like this guy i like the way he handles shit i like i like what he's trying to do i like his motives i like what he stands for this is my boy i want to see it through to the end with this guy no matter how fucking awful it gets i'm invested on this dude i'm putting my money on this guy that's integrity and that can be developed. There's no barriers to that. There's no physiological uh, kind of human traits that will stop that from happening. I mean, you, you might you know, have some difficulties doing it, especially with the conditioning and programming and trauma, but it's possible. Permanent happiness isn't. Last one. Remember as a kid, you'd be watching the news and it's always about people dying, right? Floods killed thousands of people in wherever country that you don't care about and People in a different city died in a car accident and gangsters in some country you never heard of got shot and so on, right? And just always people. And then depending on your life, some of them were close. Like, ooh, now granddad's dead and fuck a friend from school got hit by a car or whatever. But it was never you. You're always dodging those bullets. And the longer we live, the longer we get survivorship bias. And we start to think like, you know, everyone else dropping like flies, but I am fucking still going, right? And you start to get an unconscious sense of 
immortality. It's kind of like, yeah, I know death happens to other people, but still here, right? Fucking bus whipped past me. Couldn't have been an inch from my face just the other day, but didn't get me. Right? Still here. And no matter how many funerals we go to or how much terrible news we watch about people dying, it's never click like there's nothing special about us other than good luck for now. But your time is due, and you could be one of those people on the news. You could be the guy that somebody else knows who died. You could be next. One of the key things I keep in mind as much as I possibly can is I could be one of the ones who die prematurely. I've had a few things kind of bring it home for me, like I've got a uh, genetic defect that gives me high cholesterol no matter how healthy I live. Um, I'm taking medication for it, but I'm on that like high risk category for heart attack, which heart disease is the biggest killer worldwide, I think. So I'm sort of like, oh yeah, I'm not like this perfectly healthy dude. Like I've got a genetic thing that I can't do anything about basically, other than sort of try to hold it at the door. But it's going to take me, if nothing else does, that's going to. My dad, healthy as fuck, running marathons, eating salads all the time, so on. Heart attack in his 50s. I almost took him out. And, you know, now he lives like a monk just to fucking stay alive, right? And I was just like, shit, man, like, 50? That's young. That's not old dude in a rest home quietly slipping away. That's like a dude who just got back from doing a fucking half marathon dropping dead. Jesus Christ. So I've had a few things and I've had a couple of physical near-death experiences. I got pinned under a boat underwater once and a couple of other things and made me realize, oh yeah, no, it could be me. Any moment now. You have someone like whip past you and they, you know, I saw just today I was going across a pedestrian crossing and an old cunt just went past me, didn't even see that I was on there. I was like, if I'd been two steps ahead, is that it for me? Like, if I did that big like collapse and whack your head on the fucking windscreen and... Uh, Forever, you know, like it's just a it's just a step away, death. And not for other people, but for you. You could be next. Could be tomorrow, could be next year. It's almost certainly gonna be sooner than you hope it is. You don't know. What you do know is if you stop and ask yourself is if it is tomorrow, what would I regret right as I'm just like clocking out? Like imagine you die in one of those sort of slow ways where you've got a little bit to a, realize that you're definitely dying, and then B, reflect on your life. What's that experience going to be like for you? Are you going to enjoy it? You know, I've, I've got this kind of hope, and it's a bit of a theory that if you are aware that you're dying, that you will actually get a sense of peace. Now, I've had that because of my near-death experiences, especially the time I almost drowned. There was a moment where I'm just like, okay, I guess that's it. And there was no agitation in that moment. It was almost a relief. It's not like I wanted to get away from life. It's just more like a, kind of like my body had some sort of reaction to get me through that last moment. Just go full acceptance, download. You know, I just went, okay, that's it. All right, we all got to go kind of thing. And I just, I was very peaceful and surrounded, pinned to the bottom of the ocean floor by a fucking boat, right? I can't even move at all. And it only lasted a few seconds, but I just got a lucky wave that took the boat off me. But I'm just lying there under this heavy-ass boat, my fucking ribs creaking, and I was just like, oh yeah, this is it. As soon as my air runs out, that's it. Uh, I guess um, this is my turn. 
And it was just this very sort of calm thing, like, all right, that's it. Now, if the boat hadn't lifted off, I would have had a few more seconds. And I think in those few seconds, I would have gone like, so how did I go? What was my innings like, you know? Did I do my best? Is that, am I happy with that run? Am I happy with the way I've left things for the others? The people who love me and so on? And Like, it's my legacy, you know, am I cool with that? And I'm glad at that time that I, that question didn't come up because I wouldn't have liked the answer. This time, if that question came up, there might be some sort of like if that acceptance doesn't happen, like, ah, there's so much more I wanted to do. But in terms of what I have done and who I am now, I'd be like, couldn't have, couldn't have improved on it. That was me at my best for sure. Like, doesn't mean I did perfectly, but I did as well as I'm going to do, you know. So there's a question a coach asked me once, and that's what I'll finish with that you can ask yourself is, if you got a diagnosis, an un, you know, a totally believable, bulletproof diagnosis from a doctor that you are definitely going to die 12 months from today, you know, you're going to be perfectly fine until that date, and then you're going to drop out, and there's nothing you can do about it. What changes? How do you live differently in the next 12 months than you have been living? Now, if there's no difference at all, then maybe you're on track. But if straight away you're thinking, oh, there's things I should say and there's people I should go talk to and there's, oh, I don't want to do this job anymore and I've got to finally go travel and do that thing I wanted to do, then you're off track, dude. Right? Memento mori. Always remember death. Remember you're going to die. And let that guide you in your decision making. So, those are just a few of some of the big ticket realizations I've had in my life. Hopefully some of them help you there's some common ones that you've probably heard before i'm not trying to be original here these are just the ones that actually moved me uh, i left some off the list because i'm just getting tired but they weren't as good as the other ones anyway so maybe i'll make another list later thanks for watching listening whatever get in touch if you want help with this kind of stuff dan at brojo.org and i'll see you next time this is brojo online masculinity confidence and integrity 